Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lakestar, one of the leading European venture capital firms. Lakestar's mission is to find, fund, and grow disruptive businesses that are enabled by technology and founded by exceptional entrepreneurs in Europe and beyond. Founded by Klaus Ammels, the team's early investments include Skype, Spotify, Facebook, and Airbnb. And since raising its first fund in 2012, Lakestar now manages an aggregated volume of over 2.8 billion euros across their early and growth stage funds. The team actively advises and supports portfolio companies in marketing, recruitment, technology, product development, and regulatory insight, accompanying founders from seed to early stage, growth stage, or exit. Lakestar's games and media team has made 18 investments, including 1047 Games, Zebedee, Modulate, and Trace. If you're interested in learning more or getting in contact with the Lakestar team, simply go to lakestar.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have great panelists, as always, including a new face here. We've got Anil and Dave, who you should know pretty well by now. And then Taylor Hurst coming over here from Convoy. How are you guys doing? A little pre-turkey day here for some of us? Yeah, we're happily uh, not celebrating Thanksgiving Day. The, the only three people in the world, four people in the world who aren't. Well, here in Canada, we've already did our uh, Thanksgiving celebration. We do celebrate it in October. Ahead of the curve. Thank you a lot faster than Americans do. Well, you're welcome, Dave. So, Taylor, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, uh, we, we do celebrate Thanksgiving tomorrow. So, I guess we have three three separate Thanksgiving <laughs> celebrations. But I'm the principal at Convoy. We're an early-stage gaming fund focusing on pre-seed, seed, Series A investments predominantly in the technology infrastructure and platform side. So the main difference is we do not invest in, in game studios specifically, but have been there for five years now. And we are on our, our third fund, which was the most recent one for $150 million and have now done about seven investments out of that one. And we'll be continuing to invest in, in, in the gaming space going forward. Awesome. I, I'm sure everyone will look forward to hitting you up now. If you want to, mm-hmm. if you want to throw out your email and ask for that spam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My email is taylor at convoy.vc. Please feel free for anybody to, to, to reach out. Always always looking to, to, to chat with more people in the space. Awesome. Well, we'll obviously be chatting today and we've got some great topics. We, we surprisingly haven't been short on topics lately. It's uh, It's been actually pretty busy somehow going into the winter here. We've got uh, some stuff around games VC funding, which unfortunately isn't great news. Not all of this is good news. Epic has been going through some interesting times as well with Fortnite and kids playing the game, obviously. So that should be interesting to dig into a bit. OpenAI, if you've been paying attention over the weekend, a lot of fun there. We're just going to kind of sum it up and, and get into what that might mean. Some good thoughts here from Dave on live operations because he wants to follow up from last week. So that should be a good tie on. If you didn't, if you didn't catch last week, of course, make sure to do that as well. So you can catch what he's talking about. And then Embracer with the good news as always. Unfortunately, Aaron not here to cheer them on, but we'll definitely get into it. But why don't we just kick off with the games VC funding here? 
According to PitchBook and their uh, Q3 gaming report, last quarter VC firms closed 113 deals for disclosed 857 million. And this is unfortunately another decline as compared to both previous quarter and Q3 of 2022. So quarter on quarter, we see a decrease of about 10%, year on year, about 50%. And really looking also at the deal value, the value decreased a fair chunk, about 35% compared to Q2 and 68% compared to this time last year. So uh, as a quick recap in Q2, there actually was a slight increase in the total value of deals, but the total number of deals decreased 29%. And one of the things I was actually curious to do is take a look at back at when it comes to the interest rates, because one of the comments has always been, you know, well, the cost of money is a lot more expensive these days as compared to what it has been. And so one of the things I did was I took a look back at 2018, which was approximately when interest rates were fairly close to where we are today, and took a look at where our, you know, where the deal values were, the number of deals were happening. And it was actually some some fairly close similarities between the two. So I'm starting to wonder, you know, as we get into the real normal, which is probably where our interest rates are today, maybe a slight decrease over the the next next coming quarters and that, but I'm I'm not really seeing a huge decrease. We're not most likely not going to go back to the days of almost free money. I wonder if we're also now looking at probably the new normal in terms of deal transactions, value of deals. And I'm really happy that Taylor's here because I'd love to get his take on this, being the experts, and instead of myself just commenting from the from the sideline. Where's the money, Taylor? Yeah, so so what I would add to this because so Convoy also releases a, a report on the, the the private you know the private markets and games funding and it goes a little bit farther back than you know focusing on that that last year and the way we actually view this is is funding is actually just returning to that pre COVID level instead of moving off of all that hype which I mean I, I think it was warranted you know during during COVID obviously everyone was at home the the only good news you were really getting was you know, on, on any news channel was everyone seems to be playing video games. And so that was really great for the market. Anybody could go and honestly with that and low interest rates, it was a perfect storm for being able to raise, raise capital. I think, you know, alongside of, um, you know, these, these more hyped up IPOs, like your robots, your unity, your, your, your app love, and, you know, everyone going public, it, it, it seemed like gaming was that, that area we had to invest in. And what, what I think really happened here was, and, and this is going to be, I would say, a, a, a hot opinion or a, a hot topic here is I don't think games investment, games investing on the studio side is actually a, a truly like a venture fundable model. It, it requires a lot of capital. And when, you, when it comes to the VC space, generally, you're looking for these milestones that that allow you to get to that next stage. And when it comes to games going from, you know, initial funding to to an alpha to to your beta to then finally releasing a product. And we're talking about four or five years where you you may be waiting for any significant revenue or traction. And to me, I don't think that is actually how how games should be should be judged. But the issue is, is that doesn't align with how how VCs fund companies. And so anecdotally, we, we are seeing a lot of generalist firms pulling back. And so I think that is the majority of this this funding decreases. The games funds and you know your entertainment funds are are still interested in this space. But there's not that support from the general side or at that growth level anymore because it it's not warranting that 
that valuation increase or that, that, that extra funding you, you truly do need to get to that next stage. And so I think a lot of the, I, I do believe a lot of this, the, the concern around like this decrease in funding is, is partially due to just this, this uptick in funding that COVID had and allowed for. And obviously, you know, like Dave mentioned, you know, 0% interest rates, capital was cheap, not only for startups, but for VCs as well, who, you know, needed to deploy this capital. You, you know, you can't sit on the sidelines and just collect management fees forever. And so it it is definitely getting tougher. And I think games companies are being hit the hardest out of a lot of, a lot of other sectors, because it's just, it's, it's to me, not a safe bet. And, you know, no one knows what games are going to be successful. I don't think the majority of people would have chosen, you know, or would have predicted the Among Us hype or, or, or Fall Guys getting as popular as it did. But everyone wanted to chase this, you know, who's going to be funding the next Fortnite. And I think we quickly found out the people that are going to do that are the publishers. The publishers have the money to do it. They have they have the balance sheet. They have the the wherewithal to, to understand that waiting four or five years is is actually worth it. And, it, and it's not only worth it, but it's necessary. And so we we are seeing a lot of capital within the games industry shift from content over to more scalable technologies and platforms that people are looking for. But those don't warrant the amount of funding that games studios did. So we're at a point now where all of this is depressed. And I think we're going to continue to see this. But when I think when you do zoom out a little bit more, it's it's not as bad of a view as the the data shows over the last year, even two years. But when you go back to pre-COVID, we we are pretty in line with with where that was. And but I am I, I do think we're gonna see a lot of VCs that are not focused on gaming really take a step back and and be comfortable waiting for those Series A, Series B rounds when when companies are able to really prove that they have the ability to maybe reach scale. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think we're, we're returning to what the actual normal is. I think too many people, unfortunately took the levels that we were seeing during COVID as the new normal. When, as you said, it was really just a blip, you know, I think it would do a lot of people really a lot of good. If we kind of took our, our industry growth curve, just lopped off the COVID bump that we were, that we saw We'd still see, you know, a nice actual curve overall going up. You know, I, th- I think we'd still see we'd still st- we'd still see growth in the industry overall, but at a, at a much steadier rate rather than sort of um, you know out of control rates. And I think we will still see. I personally still think that content is investable, but we can have that conversation. I think another time, Taylor. <laughs> but uh, but. It, but yeah, it certainly is certainly a lot more challenging, especially as everyone's kind of pulling back. If, if the the sentiment amongst the developers and publishers is, oh wow, things have really hit a downturn, then you know that that's going to be a sentiment that's that's echoed you know pretty far and wide. If you know publishers aren't able to go up to VCs and say, hey, we see a huge hockey stick in terms of our revenue growth over where we were, then it's like, well, why would we? find something that is most likely just going to be fairly flat. Taylor's point about the uh, general VCs I think is also especially true because some of these funds will have been uh, around now for maybe six, seven, eight years, right? And that's when you'd expect that fund to return its investment. So if some of these general VCs have just got burnt and not seen any return on their original fund, then particularly given today's climate, they're, they're not going to be for it. And I think if you look at the general VC community rather than the more specialized ones, how many of them really did managed to make a good return 
there's not so many, right? If you if you invested early in someone who got by Zynga or one of these other sort of mobile big ones, sure, you've done well. But for every one of those, there's probably 10 that got nothing at all. And I think that's one of the reasons too. I would also imagine that the lack of follow-on rounds for existing companies is also partially responsible for this because it seems to me that anything get funded right now is things that are just started up right at the very beginning. It's not those that are a little bit further along the line, but interesting to observe anyway. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things to add here is I think, I think investors are becoming more cognizant of, of the, the exit multiples that a content company justifies. And I think that's, that's, that's a little bit tougher to swallow for a lot of them because it, it it's great. I mean, you, you can, you can, if you build a game that generates a hundred million dollars in, 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 you know, in revenue, that's fantastic for the game. And that's, you know, an absolute win. But on that exit multiple side, you, you're not going to see the same that you're going to get from a good general B2B SaaS business. Um, you don't, you don't have that, 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 that growth multiple that can be layered on top of this to, to warrant a, an exit that also is aligned with venture scale returns. And then I think another area that just isn't talked about that doesn't need to be like, you know, harped on too much is, a lot of that COVID hype as well, and you know, even the the year following was a lot of you know blockchain hype as well. You know, everyone seemed to be building a new blockchain game. It was getting overly funded because everyone, you know, VCs and investors wanted those tokens. You know, they they were seeing these these tokens skyrocket due to a, a low float that was probably you know pretty or was artificially heightened due to just I would say some you know almost like scarcity mechanisms within the within that token. And I think that allowed a lot of investors to, to, to throw a lot of cash at it, which is also being taken into account in a lot of these, these reports for games funding because, yeah, they were blockchain companies, but they were games companies as well. And I, and I think there's a lot of things today that are being looked at in a negative light that is just going to probably affect non-games investors from or impact non-games investors for making investments in this space going forward. Well, I think at this point, then it's pretty much just go cozy up with the Saudis or, or someone else with, that's flush with cash. I think at this point, that's still really into games. I mean, I am kind of curious too, like if you need, if it's studios that are risky, then you start to look at publishers or start to move up the layers into like bigger companies. Obviously, hey, I'm invested in Microsoft. Am I now invested in a game company? Like those kind of things where you're looking at companies with hedges of other kinds that you could return on potentially. I imagine there's a potential there, but um, speaking of people throwing around money and uh, now having to to cut back a little bit, Epic Games, although in this case, they're cutting back, I think a little bit more on certain types of content. If we're going to get to that. Yeah. So on on this point, I think it's, it's not just an Epic problem. It's just Epic, I think is the most recent, um, you know, headline story around trying to age restrict skins for, for kids under 13. And this is just a much larger problem in the game space, when you're you're building products for a, a you know a, a spectrum of, of of age groups, and the content itself isn't going to be built for each individual age group. You're not going to build four or five different games for your you know your 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 zero to to, to seven years, your seven to 13, 13 to eighteen, eighteen plus, and then you know even older. The, the, the game is the game, and. This this is becoming a, a much larger problem because there's there's content within these games that is not suitable for each of those age groups, and then on top of that you have the the issue of the advertising side of this. This goes into like Roblox, where Roblox Roblox has kind of gone back and forth on their advertising policies of, you know, are we are we going to allow you to advertise the kids under thirteen? Are we not? We don't want to have to try to build these silos for for each specific age group, but. 
I mean, yeah, we, we all saw Epic was, you know, fined $500 million for, for the practices that they were, they were engaging in. And it wasn't, it, 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 I think there was, there, there, there are issues around this when it comes to, you know, any, any short, any sort of like dark space type of processes that you're going with, you know, it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be engaging with any user with these practices, but the bigger issue is, is how do you engage with your, you know, these more, um, these younger age groups that are much more suitable to, to, to falling in traps. Um, you know, we've heard about this with loot boxes in the past and now advertising and how you sell and, um, and try to monetize users. And with this, it's, it's interesting because the, they, they got the fine, they had excess spending. They've now rolled off their super awesome, which was obviously their, their child safety and kids tech product. But the, the actual separation of these entities is now, Focus more on the advertising side. And I think a lot of companies are not going to want to be engaging in any advertising practices to to minors. It's just they don't want to take that risk, even if it is safe. And that's, you know, now we have super awesome buying back or acquiring the advertising tech while Epic's going to continue to manage their their age verification service, which is still a necessary, a necessary product. But this this to me is one of the the biggest problems that we're going to face in the next, you know, three, two to five years is how are we going to solve the problem that kids are, be, are kids are becoming more digital, so they're going to be within your ecosystems and they're going to be engaging within um, these ecosystems with age groups that can be advertised to, can engage in these practices, have the ability to make their own decisions. But it's 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 this constant question of is this a is this a is a developer's problem or can this be solved with? with some sort of technology to make this more safe for kids and have and allow parents to have more um, confidence that their kids are engaging with the content that is suitable to them. And so we're, I, I'm really interested to see how this plays out because I think we're, we're, we're just seeing the back and forth of, you have Roblox of, of, of Epic. We'll see it with Activision and the, you know, the, the Microsoft ecosystem and PlayStation and Sony's ecosystem. And how do you manage the, you know, the, the business side of the company where we need to monetize our users and make the most money as possible, but also make sure that we're not going to be allowing these children or in, any anybody to access content that is not suitable to them. Yeah. And I think this is a fun one and that we'll use Fortnite as an example. So Fortnite's rated teen. You're supposed to be 13 and up in order to play it. I can guarantee you there's a huge number of people that are playing Fortnite that are not 13. My kids played Fortnite before they were 13. My son still plays it. He's not 13 yet. So I think there's going to be that question of there is the what the game was rated. So they went through the proper channels in terms of getting their games rated through the ESRB. But what is the reality of who's actually playing? And I think when you start looking at, you know, the reality of who's actually playing, that's when groups outside of the games industry are really going to want to start getting involved. Um you know, there's certainly a level of responsibility on the part of the publisher, but at what point, you know, is the publisher going to say, look, we've made a game for a 13 year old and, and older. We've told everyone that you should be 13 and older in order to play it. Are they responsible for that six year old that's playing the game because their parents said, yes, you, you can go and play this game. And I think that's a big challenge for publishers because, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, we're doing everything right, but it's not, it's the parents and the kids themselves that are making the decisions to play. So is the publisher at fault for that? Because at some point, 
you know, then comes in the the question for, you know, first person shooters that are rated, you know, mature as you start putting in advertising methodology or, you know, tracking of data that you're not supposed to be doing with minors, but those games are played by minors. You know, at what point does that transition from a publisher's responsibility to the parent's responsibility? Don't the app stores have controls for this stuff anyways? Like to, to block like parental restrictions, like you should be like, Hey, you can't install games that are for adults, like, and, so, and teens, I would imagine. hundred percent. Yeah. You can go on the console and you can set up as parental controls. You cannot play. Not that Fortnite's on the app store, but you know, in general. But on consoles though, right? Yeah. On, on Xbox or PlayStation, you can set those parental controls up. I can guarantee you that little Timmy will be saying, all of my classmates are playing Fortnite. You have to let me play Fortnite. Otherwise, they will make fun of me. I will be ostracized by the class. No one will play with me. Everyone's playing that, so I'm missing out on that. Just wait until that GTA 6 trailer hits. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'll get requests for GTA, and that still will be the same answer. No. Thoughts and no? Yeah, I was going to say, there is, the feeling with tech is it can't always solve everything, right? Even if you did think, oh, this game looks innocuous enough and I'll allow my child to play the game, who's to say that then later on there isn't some content that you weren't aware of? That's also an issue. I was going to mention, though, that is it not Sony or someone who's experimenting using facial recognition? So if you're playing the game and it recognizes that you're not the person China? you said you are. Uh, wow, I don't know if they've done it. No, no, I, I believe there was a patent or something that we discussed it in the previous round table that you could do something like that. Or as per Taylor's point, perhaps you need to gate off certain games. Like with Epic, it's very notable how they put more and more content that is, you know, targeting different audiences than the same product. There's this festival mode that they've announced coming out soon, right? Which is they bought harmonics a few years ago. So they're going to basically have like, you know, a rock band type thing in their game. That's probably the sort of thing that you're okay with your, your kids playing. Although I suppose it depends on the music, right? It could be like the fifties all over again. Don't you be listening to that rock and roll? You, <laughs> you nippers, right? But then you could have it that way. But then, you know, you might be happy for your child to experience that part of the game, but you don't like the kind of hardcore battle royale aspect of it. So it is hard. And where does the responsibility lie? I actually don't think it lies with, with the publisher so much, as long as they adhere to the guidelines, because what else can you do? You know, if it's not your fault, you've gone over legal things. But perhaps I'm saying that as someone who comes from the development side. So maybe I'm biased. Yeah, and 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 that this is the issue is the the publishers I I do believe are doing what they can to be aligned with whatever regulatory body they need to be, but but the issue is is I think the regulatory bodies just are looking at this as it's not on us it it is on you all people are going to get around this this, this doesn't change the fact that you you're collecting data from a you know from a minor and and then the the, the other side of this is. There's so many regulatory bodies across, you know, on, on the local side of this, where you may have the ESRB kind of managing this from like a high level perspective, but every, you know, every country or, you know, uh, organization has their, or has their ability to say, well, we're going to, we're going to change a little bit. We want, we actually want a little bit more and, and gaming inherently is global. That, that is the, the best way to, to monetize your, your product is to get it to as many people as possible. But when you're talking about going to, to dozens, if not over a hundred different countries, you may have 50 plus different regulatory bodies you have to try to manage and, and be aligned with and understand where is that child or where is that player base? What is their age? What are the rules that, that I have to follow there? How does that affect the, the game content that they have access to? And what, what we're actually seeing more of is 
game publishers that are usually on the, I would say, you know, double A to single A side, just saying, we're not going to allow anybody under 17 or under 18. No one can play this game. We're actually not even going to go into markets that are, I would say, a little bit more blurry on on their on their on their regulations because we're just not even going to risk it. I would I would rather lose out on that that potential revenue than take the risk of getting the fine that would would come with breaking these breaking these rules. And so this this is this is just becoming, I think, extremely messy. And I think publishers are just going to be forced to either say, "Hey, we're just going to we're we're they're big enough to be able to eat the fine, and we're just going to we're just going to proceed the way we're doing this, which we do believe is is the the right way. We do believe we are putting up the correct guardrails. But if a kid you know uses a VPN or uses their parents' credit card or lies lies about who they are, like we we really can't do anything about it, and we're going to try to manage what what data we are collecting or what what advertising we're we're, we're allowing on the platform, what type of content is." And it's just we're just going to take that risk, or it's just hey, we're we're going to cut off fifty percent of our market, and we're just going to focus on the one that we can control. And it's just it's it, it's not it's it's just not as straightforward as I think most people would want it to be. And I think this is going to come down to there's going to need to be some agreement that's like this is the baseline. As long as you're doing this, we're all good. But we're just not there yet, and that's why we're seeing yeah Roblox and Epic in the, just the last few months. Issuing new policies, rolling back these policies, trying to figure out some middle ground, and it—it's it, just not clear where where we're where we're going to end because gaming gaming is already where it's at. Kids are gonna kids are gonna play. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point too, it's obviously the UGC stuff that's really exacerbating the problem in the sense that when a game's rated normally, like you know what the content is going to be, and therefore it's rated according to that. I mean, in theory, right, live service games could technically be a problem as well, right? Because they introduce new content over time that could be, you know, violating the spirit of what they were rated under, for example, if they wanted to try and sneak something in. Because we're talking about, like, you run into something later. But at the same time, like, UGC stuff's the big problem. And I do remember Roblox was trying to introduce a thing, too, where they were like, oh, we're going to have a section for, like, the older kids. And then I don't I don't know if that ever even went through. I feel like that that... It just flopped immediately. People were like, no, I want to play with the older kids. And that's the problem is kids generally want to be older and want to act older. And that's going to drive them to always kind of like find ways to violate that. Right. Then, uh, you know, it's, it's always going to be a problem, but like, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be government. It's going to be publishers and it's going to be parents and everyone's going to have to like have a part in it. Right. Like no one's going to really be able to get off scot-free out. Hopefully the, the fines that are paid go towards improving the situation and not just towards like, you know, government fine treasuries essentially. But uh, speaking of, of, of things shaking up because of safety issues, potentially, OpenAI had a real fun weekend for a lot of people. I imagine a lot of people really uh, kind of worried about their future there. Just to recap kind of what happened at OpenAI, for those of you that weren't glued to X this weekend and all the drama that came from that, essentially what happened was the board, which you know is separate from the shareholders, basically fired Sam Altman, the CEO, was like, nope, you're out. See ya. Like with almost no notice to anyone, like very, very short notice to all the shareholders, to the staff, to Sam Altman, it sounded like himself. Like it was, I think it was announced over like a Google Hangout was like, you know, peace out, you're gone. And that's it. Like, and so, you know, obviously that was a pretty dramatic firing, but what followed was even more dramatic in the sense that the people that wanted to come with him turned into a much, much bigger situation where, uh, you know, the president also left and about 90 plus percent of the staff was like volunteer to just resign. Like they signed a letter saying, be like, we're out if he's out, like we're going to go get out of the jobs because what happened was Microsoft was like, 
We're happy to have more of OpenAI than 49%. We're happy to just take the brains with us and offer jobs to everyone. Even Salesforce was offering jobs. Like pretty much was everyone was like, yeah, dude, we'd love a piece of that. Like, please bring your brains over here. And so uh, the board was kind of like, oh, that that's not a good plan. And pretty much tried to like find a way to negotiate and be kind of like, oh, we're sorry. And then it started to look like that was falling through. And he was just, and, and Microsoft basically was like, cool, they're starting a new company. Both Sam Altman and the former president, Greg, I don't remember his exact last name. We're just going to come over and start a new company. And whoever wants to come over here, cool. Like they're going to be a big part of that. And then uh, it did end up eventually getting negotiated where it was basically like, tell you what, I'll come back if you pretty much wipe the board and just like, no, just get rid of them because they're the problem. At least in, I mean, we don't know a lot of the details in terms of what went down. Supposedly had to do with like Sam Altman not being like totally like transparent about stuff. I forget the exact terminology. It's kind of weird terminology, but basically saying like, oh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't being transparent with this kind of thing. And it, it could have been over for-profit stuff. It could have been over ethical stuff, safety stuff. There's a lot of, you know, things being thrown around, but basically they ended up agreed to that. Microsoft was like, okay, that's fine with us. Like, because we know now we're going to be super tight with OpenAI at this point, because we did that, everyone's going to be like our homies. And therefore like, this is a good thing for us. So that's fine. And so basically Sam Altman's back, president's back and everyone wiped off the board except for one person, which is Adam D'Angelo got to stay. And they brought in a former Salesforce co-CEO, Brett Taylor, who's like a Silicon Valley guy who's been around for a long time. And interestingly, an economist and former treasury secretary back in like 99 2001 larry summers so it's like those two and uh, and and adam d'angelo so so Ilya, helen and tasha are all out of the board which uh, are the ones who were definitely having conflict with it seems like so uh so yeah big big change up there but even bigger for microsoft because now they're in a position where like they were up to 49 percent. this is the company that's still kind of leading the pack and they're still up against google and I'm being perfectly honest, Google stuff is terrible in comparison to most of what we've seen from OpenAI so far, like even in the, the Bing implementations. Personal opinion, of course, but generally like in, in benchmark tests, it's just not up to par yet where Google wants to be. So this is a huge win, I think, for for Microsoft, even if it like didn't ultimately end up in their camp. And I think you know, relevant for gaming because Microsoft even more involved in gaming now after they finally acquired uh, the, the unicorn that was getting shot at from every direction. Uh, and, and managed to pull that in. And obviously, you know, like Activision Blizzard didn't announce they're using anything with AI, but let's be real. It's going to be involved in game production. They're going to look to cut costs and things as people are getting laid off from all of these companies. AI will be involved in that. And Microsoft will now be much more positioned to have a piece of that. Blizzard did mention that, well, but just quickly in your game things, saying Microsoft not looking at it. Blizzard did have something they reported that they were looking to use it to generate assets for World of Warcraft. So, um, yeah, yeah, because it kind of makes sense with the kind of don't necessarily have to support the highest F art style. You need to make loads of content all of the time. So you might see something come out of this. I got a feeling they probably already went down some other route already. But, you know, now you can bring everything in house. So don't be too surprised if you see things in games even quite soon yeah, as a result of this. I do think that overall, the the end scenario is probably the best it possibly could be for Microsoft. With the one exception... I'm, I'm sure Microsoft would love to have someone on the board now. Um, not sure how much of a warning they, even though they're, you know, 49% shareholder that they got that Sam was being fired. It sounded like they didn't get hardly any. And that's why CEO was really, really pissed off from, at least from public things. It was a fun tennis match to watch. Just all the things that were happening going back and forth between where is he? Where is he? Where is he? 
But I do think in the end, it's actually probably the best uh, end scenario for Microsoft. Um, you know, there is still a lot of controversy. There still is a lot of risk around AI. And this gives Microsoft still, you know, open access to everything at OpenAI, but they don't have to necessarily take any of the reputational risk of if things do go south and they don't have to have all of those things on necessarily directly on, on their servers and uh, on their Just side. Just on the Bing side of things, right? They got to worry about. Yeah. They, they, they still are able to do a bit of an arm's length, you know, being able to hold uh, open AI at an arm's length and what they're doing. So if it goes well, they're able to take full advantage of it, you know, just as they are right now with their integration inside Bing. And if it goes south, then, well, it's separate from Microsoft and it's a, a little bit safer for them. Yeah, and I would just say, yeah, well, I mean, it was super fun to watch, obviously, just sitting, you know, being able to watch it from the sidelines. I don't think we'll ever know what really happened, at least in the short term, of, you know, how this happened so quickly to the, you know, the 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 golden child of, of, of AI being being open AI. But, yeah, this, I, it seems like the winner is Microsoft here. They they obviously have, they're, they're now seen as more valuable. I think they're honestly gained a lot of respect from, from the AI community. Cause I think there was always that concern of, Oh, big tech companies acquiring, you know, our, you know, this AI golden child. Who's the CEO standing up for him, right. And standing up yeah. for all the employees. Yeah. And I, and so it is, it seems like just like a massive misstep from the board. I think it's very clear now, you know, with hindsight, obviously it was a massive misstep, but how quickly this happened. And from all of our, I think our assumption was this happened, you know, within like a 24, 48 hour period of just decision-making, Fired, released a statement, and everyone's just caught off guard for it. But yeah, you have Sam Altman and Greg Brockman back back with the company, full steam ahead without the board. That seemed to be this, this counterweight to to what they wanted to do, and it's 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 very clear that yeah, Microsoft came out on top. But I think there is some interesting um, aspects of this that I, over the next you know let's say year, we'll we'll see how this gets in, integrated into anything within the you know Xbox Game Studios and. The, the, that larger ecosystem, because I think there are there, you know, now they have the, they, they have the resources, they have the capital, they have the, you know, I, I think, gosh, if I, if I remember correctly, I, I, I really hope this quote, cool. this isn't wrong, but it was like Microsoft allocating like 50, $50 billion worth of, of computing to, to open AI to continue to train these models. I mean, that's not just going to go into, to chat GPT and, and, and Dolly. I mean, this is probably going to go into how, how do you, you know, fix the, the, the frameworks and processes they use in the game side. And, you know, if we can, if we're talking about 10, 20% at, at a minimum decreases in costs, I mean, this is huge for Microsoft. They, they, they control it. They, they, they're going to have access to everything before anybody else does. And it's, it, it's funny how we, we joke about like, or, or how we all talked about, you know, how, how upset Sony was with the Activision Microsoft acquisition. But I mean, this, this seems like a leg up on Sony now. So, I mean, Sony's not anywhere, anywhere near, um, any of your, um, you know, AI companies, you, you obviously have Google who was kind of, you know, stepped back from gaming, but now you have Microsoft with arguably the most powerful and successful games or, or AI company in history. And well, I, I think that's going to be really, really interesting from just, I think our perspective on, on this, on this call is just how, how does this change Xbox game studios? How does this change Microsoft's game strategy going forward? Because Microsoft's at the wheel now and they, 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 they have access to, to, stuff that no other games company has. And I do think that the actions by Microsoft over the weekend in, in trying to hire Sam was as much defensive as it was in support of the OpenAI, OpenAI team. 
if Sam had gone to a competitor, if Sam had gone to Google, if Sam had gone to Salesforce, if Sam had gone to another competitor to Microsoft, that would have been a big thing. You know, and I, I really do think that as much of, uh, you know, very publicly it was, we love OpenAI, we're going to support everyone there. Behind the scenes, it was, oh my God, if they take their technology and know-how to somebody else, we're actually a big loser right here. So I do think it was as much defensive as it was uh, supportive. Absolutely. There was another twist I did I actually forget to mention that I wanted to bring up as well, which was like a kind of one of the last minute twists where the board actually tried to see about merging with Anthropic uh, for, for their Claude model. And Anthropic was just like, nah, we're good. And just rebuffed them. And so uh, there was like some, some potential conflict of interest where some of the board members had written papers, for example, that had been saying that Anthropic was doing like better from a, you know, an ethical safety standpoint than OpenAI kind of bashing OpenAI a bit publicly. I mean, there's some, some, unfortunately, the way that everything's set up with OpenAI is very complicated when it comes to conflicts of interest and missions and profit and everything like that. So that was kind of an interesting twist from Anthropic, especially Anthropic, you know, kind of going like, no, nah, we don't, we don't want to get involved in this. And so, you know, so it's good though, because we still have some competition then, right? Like that would obviously not been great for Anthropic and OpenAI to be one thing. We need like competition here between these different tools that may be good at different things, especially for games. But I do wonder if, you know, even if Microsoft's not involved as much in the future, if they start to you know shape things a little bit in terms of like, hey, here's what we want to use OpenAI for. And obviously, you know, GPT-5 was in the works, supposedly. And they needed a whole bunch of power to uh, do a bunch of the training for that. To the point where I'd heard rumors that they were even like, Tim Altman was even looking at trying to get chips made and kind of bypass NVIDIA for, for having enough processing power for this stuff. And obviously, the compute credits from... Microsoft are making a huge difference as well. But I do wonder if like uh, games might get a little bit more benefit out of GPT-5 now that they've seen that use case, right? That they've seen, they put GPT out there. They saw how everyone used it, which was part of the point of doing that. And now they can be like, well, games are a use case. Maybe we can make sure that something's in there for games as well when we train GPT-5. Like some possibility that we could see like AI shaping towards some more specific use cases or just incorporating more of the general ones that people happen to like find a use for ChatGPT with. Yeah. The Anthropic news or, or, or rumor was, was extremely interesting because I, it, it, it I, I, as I understand, and, and again, I, I always want to preface this with we're, we're just pontificating on a lot of, on a lot of stuff and a lot of rumors, but as far as I understand the, 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 the initial issue with, the, the board had with Sam or Sam had with the board was one of the board members had written that research paper, you know, judging the, the safety and, and alignment of, of models of different companies. And, and, you know, they're, you know, kind of rating them and obviously putting Anthropic at, at the top and open AI uh, behind them. And that was obviously a concern where you have a board member essentially writing a scathing research piece about how, how far behind you are on what they believed was important, which was the safety and alignment side. And then, you know, when, when you lose a CEO, you try to do the merger to try to bring in Endario to become the new CEO of this product. But now you have you have two you have, you, have, you have two products and two companies that are going after this problem differently. And it seemed like that was trying to that, that that was almost like we have to save ourselves. We have to bring in, you know, what we consider the next best. And we have to bring in the next best that aligns with the reason why we fired um, the CEO of, of OpenAI, being Sam. And uh, that was, you know, this 
it, it just it just seemed like the, the board wanted to take over. They they whether or not the the issues they saw were were, were true, they wanted to they wanted to push the company in the direction they wanted to go in, the one they felt was the right direction. And and uh, yeah, it was it was it, it seemed like that was that was shut down very quickly by Anthropic. It was just no, we're 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 on our own path. We're gonna do what we want to do. We're not here to save you all. I think at the end of the day, the repercussions of this probably won't be obvious for a while. Like you said, we won't know the whole story, but also like why this happened is likely to have some kind of impact on the future, right? Like if, if say, for example, like the board had a good reason or not for what they did, now they're not there. And therefore, whatever Sam was going to do or wants to do, like is likely to continue to happen possibly depending on the new board. So I think, you know, we, it may be subtle, it may not be, but we will likely see repercussions down the road, whether that be on safety and ethics or for profit motives or something like that. Who knows, right? Like you said, we're pontificating. We're all getting like just little bits of news. It was interesting as well, like catching Elon's commentary, of course, you know, as kind of his sort of uh, more publicly rivalrous nature with OpenAI in the current state and, and some of the other people involved and all that. So interesting takes there if, you, if you're bored and want to look at more of the drama for fun till we get the sort of Tiger King style Netflix special on this. But uh, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll find out, right? Hopefully in the end, though, I think we're all hoping this is going to be good for games and not Skynet, but we don't really know, right? This is kind of cats out of the bag at this point. So we'll see. But I think Dave had some interesting continuing thoughts on live operations because of course, you know, that, Discussion in itself is now a live ops. <laughs> there we go. It just keeps on going on. Yeah, no, I, I, I just want to add, build upon some of the points that were made last week. I think there was a, a fantastic discussion that was going on around live operations. And I really just want to take my oppor- this opportunity to uh, add in some of my own thoughts. For me, some of the points that I look at in terms of uh, what's going on today, and I'm speaking a little bit more towards the console and PC side of live operations than mobile. If you look back to when, you know, uh, a lot of the games or a lot of the plans for games were being made, which was, you know, probably two or three years ago, it was a different time. It was a different place. People were seeing how much money that mobile was bringing in and, and people looked towards live operations as being the, one, the main driver for that. And you know, if you look at when companies are putting together their roadmaps in terms of here's when the games are coming through, especially when it comes to the larger companies, Capcom, for example, I was responsible for a five-year rolling roadmap for, the, for, for mobile, but the you know, console and PC side does the same thing. What that meant, I think at that point where people were seeing a lot of money, a lot of revenue, a lot of attention towards live operations and said, okay, let's bring that into the console world, into the PC world without doing enough of a deep dive in terms of what that actually means to actually do that. So I remember when EA, for example, was starting to make the switch from pure console and PC or packaged goods and started making the move, not just DLC, but moving towards the the games of the service model where it, it, it really is a, a, a different thought process in terms of how a game is made, how a game is built, how a game is designed. And it, um, there were, there were people that, you know, in the initial, we're like, hey, you know, free to play, very interesting. I don't understand how to design a game for that. I don't understand how to actually make a game that 
where you'd actually block content off, make it behind paywalls versus building something that's an experience where someone paid their money in the beginning and we're going to give everything to them. There are people that had a hard time understanding the differences in, in designing games in that fashion. And it's the same thing as the difference between building DLC content and running live operations. They are not the same thing. DLC content is really just an extension of your development time period. You are building a chunk of content and you're plopping it in place. But you're not going through the same process as you are with live operations where you not only are generating content, but you're also getting those feedback loops. Really good live operations are ones where you're always listening to the what the consumers are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Not I'm planning out six chunk, you know, six months worth of work and then plopping it down. It is looking at that data from a day-to-day -day perspective. What can we do to improve? going on, you know, from a day-to-day -day perspective, what do we do to build content that's in reaction to the, to the consumers? And so that really is a much different mindset. And I think as people start looking at, well, let's add in live operations, they weren't taking into account that that is not only a, a switch in terms of what the business model is, but it's also a switch in terms of how do you staff that, that group of people how do you, and then going all the way to the beginning of how do you design a game to allow for proper live operations to happen right from the get-go? Because that does require you to set up the game from the start in terms of how you build your core loops, how you build all of the, the onion layers of the game to allow for live operations. If you think about it, a lot of this stuff is almost extending MMO design from back in the day, right? Because the thing, the other thing that I think doesn't get mentioned often enough about these is this is generally not single player games we're talking about. It's generally multiplayer game environments. And I think that's also a big factor that running long running multiplayer game environments, even if they're not live ops, is difficult to do. And managing an economy in there, or even if it's not an economy, just people interacting with each other in some way or another is difficult to do over like even a six month span. It is. It is. And you're, and you're even adjusting, you know, what what features you're paying attention to, what features you decide you're going to double down on. Other ones where you're like, look, you know, people are just not playing this. They're not digging this. The, the, the retention's not there and the engagement isn't there. So let's refocus and, and move to a different feature set. Um, now, the other part that I think also gets a little bit lost at times is the cost of content. And if you look at mobile games where people are building out their live operation schedules, unless you are something like a Genshin Impact, where you are throwing literally thousands of people at building content, trying to build content to a certain scale of visual quality, visual fidelity, your costs become almost on an exponential curve. So as you look at trying to build out, you know, if, if I'm building out new content for a hyper-casual, a hybrid-casual, I can build out a new level in a day or two. If I'm trying to do that for a level of quality that is a Sony level of quality, a Microsoft level of quality, an Activision, EA, that is a ton of people, a ton of time, and a ton of cost. And you're not able to get to that same level of uh, ability to react to what your consumer is feeding to you on that on, a, on those charts, you know, that your, your KPIs that you're looking at on a daily basis. So you're, you're not able to react as quickly. 
And the cost of doing those reactions is a lot more as compared to what you're seeing inside the mobile space. So I think as, so there's the comment about, you know, there are, uh, you know, major companies that are now starting to pull back on the live operation side of things for their, for their games. And I think that is actually in recognition of, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, hey, we're going to do live operations on our games now. It's recognition of the games need to be built so that it can have effective live ops. The cost structure is different and how you're staffing out your team is different. And I think it's people are now starting to recognize that those are a lot of compounding factors in trying to get live operations right. And the risk, the risk profile on the console and PC side when that cost of content is that much higher is also now that you have know, that much higher risk as well. So I, I think those are some of my thoughts in terms of uh, you know some, some of the reasons why there's some of that step back. And part of me now wonders is, and this is interesting as we get into some of the Embracer discussion, are mid-sized publishers potentially in a better place to be able to do live operations if their visual fidelity isn't necessarily the same level, their cost and risk structure isn't the same as trying to do, you know, live operations for God of War, for Activision, you know, for Call of Duty, or, you know, any of those that were the really high level quality of, of fidelity. I'll throw in the one final twist too before I throw it over to Anil, which is that uh, the other thing is the tech infrastructure on these in dealing with publishers, I mean, not publishers, but the, the gatekeepers of consoles or the, the app stores in that if you want to change content, you either have to have a very complex tech infrastructure to be able to do that without shipping an update, or you have to go through the process of shipping an update on console. You're going through certification processes and all that complicated stuff to ship an update on the app store. You're still dealing with like, Every time you know you go to ship an update to Apple, you're rolling the dice and hoping they don't deny it for some random reason. On Google's side as well, there's you know delays. You don't know exactly when that update might go live, and all these things like just extra complicate the this stuff if you don't have the tech infrastructure necessary to push like over the air updates. And I've seen like you know companies have to learn that on the fly where they're like, oh, we're slowly shifting some more of this data to be like in the cloud or to be like in a way that we could push out. But then you've got to worry about like safety and security. You can't have that client side where people could get to it. All that kind of stuff. Then you have people data mining because you're trying to ship stuff out early. And like, there's just so much to that. But uh, I think it has some to say, Anil, as well. I was going to touch on what you just said there. And actually it was a question for Dave. Does it surprise you though that they're pulling back so in in such significant ways, given the time it takes to get there. Because I was going to say, as someone who's experienced both those worlds, both the kind of console PC side and the mobile side, that mobile didn't just start as kind of live service and having these amazing feedback loops, right? It started of just kind of being the, the same kind of box products. And let's try the occasional update. Oh, these are working quite well. Maybe we should do more updates. Oh, hear me out. What if we did these updates like every every two weeks? What about every week? What about every day? That's what they're doing on Facebook, right? And it took time and then the tech that you've just mentioned building their demo. And then I guess it doesn't surprise me, for example, that like, you know, if you had a portfolio of 12 games, like, whoa, 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 that's way too many. But I kind of feel that like you can see that the returns are there and you've got to kind of tough it out, right? Like how many failed mobile products were there before a company actually gets the one that becomes like the cash cow for the company? So it does surprise me a little bit if they're like completely pulling back on strategy because... 
yeah, I just feel that like, you know, you know, the rewards are there. It's not going to be something you solve and you've literally got to build up that experience and know-how and everyone always underestimates it from both sides. Like people on a console side don't realize how fast you're supposed to go. Then you might start hiring people from the mobile world who think they know everything. They're like, well, why does it take so long? Because they're not used to the quality. And so, you know, you almost have to get this new team together you know, make them a nucleus of them and and then try and get it. But I do find it very interesting what you said about the mid-sized publishers. That is quite possible. I think if you've got a strong product that the community really likes, I, I often reference Baldur's Gate, even though that game did take a long time to make, but it's maybe not as AAA as like, you know, a superstar game maybe on on console or PC could be done. But if you take something that players actually like and then you can start building it and then that may actually not hold you back. So that's quite an interesting point. But I've rambled a lot, so I'll see what you think about things. Does this leave some room then for, for contractors to maybe be live ops experts in a situation where you're like, hey, we don't have, like we're great at developing the initial game, we're great at developing content, we're not great at the live ops side, uh, you know, we'll work with a contractor who's great at managing that and to be a managed service. Like, like I remember, for example, when Rainbow Six was like having trouble constantly scaling the keeping the game updated while also managing the people on other projects to the point where they're like, hey, Ubisoft Barcelona, you're not doing enough right now. Why don't you help us with our game balance? We'll just task you with just that where like they start to piecemeal out certain areas that require you know, certain amounts of time and stuff they just don't have the staff capacity for, or maybe the technical capacity or maybe the know-how. Like you're talking about like, you know, smaller level people, maybe not having, you know, the same level of skills or people that are pulling back, maybe they could pull back and contract it out to someone else. Cause you know, there's a lot of companies struggling for cash right now that I'm sure would love to be contracted out to and, uh, and leverage that expertise that they have. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain they would. Um, I think the, for some of the larger ones, I think you, you are going to get into the challenge of what your pipeline actually looks like. So um, when it comes to mid-size or smaller companies, you know, they're probably going to be working inside tech stacks that's very familiar, you're working inside Unity, you're working inside Unreal. For some of the larger companies, you're going to be dealing in proprietary tech stacks. So, you know, Frostbite for EA as an example. So there will be some elements that you will be able to to put out, but I think in, in other cases there will be a bit of a challenge. 100% right that you know the tech stack needs to be designed with the game up front, Devin. So it, yeah, it, it, those those decisions in terms of how you're going to distribute content has to be made early on. It's again something you can't just bolt on bolt on at the end. And um, I think even companies that have both the the mobile side and the console side. I know, at least in, in some of the earlier days, there was the a little bit of the, no, we make real games, we make console games. You mobile people, you don't make real games. You, you're just making... Until they got jealous of the money. Making fluff. I, I, you know, I think even today, when people look at, you know, mobile makes over 50% of the overall revenue inside the games industry, I think there still is, a, a, in many cases, a pretty hard defined line between the real games of console and PC and then the mobile stuff. I think it's weird too, when like we're very U S centric in terms of like uh, not only that point of view, but also like where a lot of the stuff happens, right? Like because of the U S is such a big part of the games industry as it is. And we are like a very kind of like, uh, you know, like us versus them when it comes to gamers versus mobile people. And we're not one of those nations that's like very mobile first kind of thing. I think that creates this kind of weird dichotomy, and so we're like almost going through these weird growing pains as games are like starting to try and get there. Like, you know, with Apple trying to show off like, hey, we can have real games on our phones now. Like that sort of thing. Like we're, it's, we're trying to get parity, right? Like obviously we're, we're obviously not getting the Nokia engage again anytime soon, hopefully. 
But that sort of like idea of like, well, we want to bring it down to that level. You know, we tried to do tablets that didn't really kind of fill that game space. We haven't really found like a good in between. And there's people trying to release like PlayStation Portal or, you know, you've got the handhelds like the Steam Deck. They're trying to kind of be that in between. So real gamers can still play games on the go. And then cloud, you know, trying to make its way in there and stuff like that. So it seems like we're trying to find that middle ground. But with the U.S. kind of being a big part of that, whereas like I think if Japan was like, you know, running this all, they'd be like, yeah, dude, mobile games are just fine. Like handhelds yeah, are great. Part of it, like we, we don't have this dichotomy here. And the, I think the big part of that, though, even a lot of this even goes back to where how gaming started in each of the regions. So I think where you look at in terms of that that divide between console and PC exists more in North America and in Europe. Because if you look at how games grew inside both of those areas, it was very much, you know, North America, console, packaged goods. Europe, PC, but still packaged goods. Asia, as you look at how their game infrastructure raised up, in many cases, it was server-based. It was free-to-play. And so, you know, the easiest way to access games, in many cases outside of, uh, you know, some of the cafes, was on on your mobile device. So certainly... You know, looking at how how game cultures grew up it certainly had a an influence on that. But uh, but yeah, but I'm really I am interested, especially as I start seeing more mid sized publishers start popping up. I am curious to see you know what the difference is, and I guess we'll just wait till games as a service is mixed with the blockchain. It just only gets crazier, right? And you got to figure out that tech stack too. But yeah. uh, speaking of huge mismatches of game culture and whatnot, Embracer, you know, unfortunately going through some more. Uh, is it growing pains or shrinking pains at this point? I know. Oh, that is a low blow. I feel for them. Well, look, firstly, commiserations to anyone that's affected. It's never nice to say about this, but I think this is still an interesting topic because Embracer Group is something that we talk about at the roundtable quite a lot because of their kind of strategy over the last couple of years. But actually having Taylor here would be pretty good to get his take on it, I have to say. So let's just go through the bad news first. So they're laying off 900 people, which is 5% of its total workforce. You know, if you remember, they went on a huge acquisition spree over the last couple of years and built up quite the portfolio. They have said that since the end of Q2, they have uh, been working on restructuring. And that has something that has been ongoing over the last sort of two years. Um, but, you know, they say that, you know, they're not going to comment on specifics, but further restructuring closures buyouts are in process and you know that can lead to additional headcount reductions but potentially that means they're maybe not done in, in terms of buy and also but who are affected it's, it's been rumored that the free radicals devs who make time splitters has been closed that would be very sad that's a very beloved game crystal dynamics who make tomb raider they've lost 10 percent of its workforce there's layoffs at beamdog who make knights of the old republic if we're ever going to see that version of the game you know which is something a lot of people are waiting for send studios who make pinball effects there's allegedly up to 15 projects that they say have been written down. I'm not quite sure what that means. They claim that's not the same as being, uh, you know, written off as something else. May I, I don't know. They get some accountants speak. Maybe we can look into what exactly that means. But I guess they're never going to see the, the light of day. And perhaps the, the biggest news is that Gearbox is allegedly up for sale, who, of course, make uh, Borderlands, which would be huge. So there's a lot to kind of take on there. Um, you know, for me, like I say, I do, I wonder, especially given that, you know, I, I like it when our roundtables sort of do come full circle. So starting from the top of the show to kind of now with like the VC funding scenario, is this just because maybe they were overzealous in the early days? And, you know, I think the feeling at the time was they were buying a lot of companies at the very top of what their valuation was compared to what they were. Is this more that they feel that they can extract more out of it with a better, more more consolidated strategy? And what does this mean for like the overall industry going forwards? 
Yeah, it's it, it's it, it's clear that, or it's it's, it's clear to, or I, I believe it's clear that what, what's happening in the games industry is it's just getting more competitive. It's it's extremely hard to consistently release games now that are going to be these these massive hits. Obviously, if you if you look at kind of some of these large the largest companies like your Sony's, your Microsofts, your your EAs, they have these ongoing franchises that are they're they're, they're ingrained into the gaming ecosystem and. You know they're going to come out every single year at the exact same time. They're going to they're going to be adopted by the exact same users. As much as we all tell ourselves, I'm not buying the next Call of Duty. I bought the next Call of Duty the day it was available every time. And I think when you look at Embracer and 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 their structure, they do have a lot of beloved titles. They have a lot of these these developers and publishers that are absolutely you know loved by the by their community. But what what I what I get concerned about is. Those communities aren't, aren't aren't growing in the same way that other franchises are, and it's just making it extremely hard to justify investment going forward. And I mean, we, we obviously yes, savvy. I don't know if you guys talked about it before. Yeah, savvy yeah, pulled out of their deal, which I mean, that might even just be more so the, the issue here. I mean, we go back to yeah the discussion at the very beginning of that that that's an investment. That's an investment in the growth of Embracer and their ability to continue to release content and. It seems like Savvy may have either, you know, whether or not it has to do with anything internally at Savvy, probably looked at that and said the investment of return opportunity is not as as clear as as we were hoping for. These these games are not going to probably be the 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 Call of Duty live ops type of experience or the or a Fortnite where we're gonna we're gonna be generating billions of revenue a year off of them. They'll they'll get released, hopefully be successful at launch, but just like a lot of a lot of the games I think within their portfolio, those first 30 days are what's most important for them. And I think it's getting to that point now where the portfolio that Embracer has has built is not in line with what the market is looking for, especially from an investment perspective. And it's just it's it yeah, you know, and, and you know, like you like you said, it's we never wanna we're never celebrating layoffs. It's but it's it's probably it, it does seem like this is a necessary concern. It's they, they you cannot you cannot support that many games that I think are 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 too reliant on initial game sales um you know could you do borderlands as a full live service game and in the last 10 years maybe but i don't think you can i i really just i don't think the game's built for that it's 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 built for that you know 2000 early early 2000s to you know 2010s time frame where it's, i'm gonna buy a game i'm gonna get a full game and that that's it and I'm, you're gonna sell 50 million copies of it for 70 bucks and fantastic but that's not what the game industry wants anymore, or at least like what the consumers want anymore. They want a game that's going to be changing over time. You 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 may be able to do this on a one-off. Like I think God of War is always a great example of this. Fantastic game, not built for live service, but every year, you know, or every five seven years, it'll sell just like Grand Theft Auto. But you got to put so much capital behind that, and I just don't know who's taking the risk on Embracer's portfolio that they'll be able to. Invest invest in those game titles and and see a return that, that that's worth it. I think uh, part of the other challenge that Embracer is having, and I think, really in many cases, just comes down to uh, expectations around marketplace. Uh, is their organic growth is just not there, not to the levels where it really needs to be. I think if you look at that that strategy of bringing together a portfolio of companies and games. Um, you know, it makes sense that they were always increasing the value of the company, but they were doing it through M&A. But there was the expectation that organic growth was going to be the thing that once you've kind of got that 
the giant boulder rolling down the hill that are, you know, the organic growth was going to be the thing that helped keep it moving. And as more and more reports have come back in terms of what uh, Embracer Games have been able to do, that organic growth hasn't been at the level that it required, especially as, you know, the cost of their debt has been increasing, you know, that much more. It's not being offset by the organic growth that the, that the company is seeing. So I think it's, that is a big part of it. I think interestingly, if you look at what other big companies have been through in the past as well, and I'm going to point at both EA and Activision in this particular case. There was a time when EA and Activision, they published a ton of games, a lot of games. But these are games that were doing a million units, two million units, half a million units. And what they came to the realization was, you know, it's not worth us doing all of these games. Instead of us having a very large portfolio of a bunch of games that maybe do a million units in sales, two million units in sales, let's make sure that all the games we do are 5, 10, 15, 20 million unit sales and only do those. And what happened at both Activision and, and EA when they came to that realization, they not only shed the titles, they unfortunately also laid off a good chunk of people because they realize, you know, that they they're spreading a whole bunch of people across number titles. Let's just concentrate them on, on a few. It makes me wonder that what, it, like when, you know, we're talking about the bigger companies that Embracer picked up and like what their fate might be. But I, I worry about the smaller companies underneath those companies. So there was a lot, a lot of these companies they bought had a lot of subsidiaries and other companies they picked up along the way. Like, you know, Asmodee, which is even in video games has like a ton of, of like board game companies underneath it. And then a lot of these other game companies also have subsidiaries. It's like what happens then to those kind of ones. I don't think they get piecemealed off. Like, do they just get, uh, Oh, sorry, we got to make internal cuts at your company, which means cutting that subsidiary and things like that. Like, this is not just like a problem for those bigger acquisitions that were announced so much as even the ones within them. I would, I would worry about. Yeah. And I, and, and I, I actually really think it's a good point that Dave brought up on this, the M and a strategy as a business and why this works for some companies and doesn't work for other ones. Like it's, it, it's, 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 it, you know, I know you, you brought this up. It's I, I bet far more people know who gearbox is than embracer is, but embracer owns gearbox. And, but when you think about this from like a, an ecosystem perspective, it, it works. The M&A strategy works if your plan is to keep as many people within your ecosystem as possible. This is why Xbox and Sony strategy is either we're going to have our first party studios. We're going to go acquire studios because we want to keep people in the PlayStation or Xbox ecosystem respectively. And and, and that and, and that's extremely valuable. But Embrace doesn't have an ecosystem. Their ecosystem is just it's we just own a bunch of studios. We're going to hope we're, we're going to fund them. We're going to hopefully distribute these games into other ecosystems. But. There's, there's almost no way to keep these users within your ecosystem, which then helps with this, like Dave brought up, the organic growth of your other games. You, you could, you know, Activision getting acquired by Blizzard is, is great for, I'm sorry, Activision getting acquired by Microsoft is great because now this game is going to be, you know, recognized in the Microsoft ecosystem. Obviously, they, you know, they've, they've mentioned they're not going to take it out of other ones, but getting people to play in that ecosystem allows you to discover other games in the ecosystem, which then increases the value of your entire portfolio of games. Gearbox is probably not helping Embracer increase the, the revenue or users of other games. And that is just the strategy does not work. You become, you just become a holding company and 
with yeah with with debt becoming more expensive how do you continue to fund all these companies you have these are each individual siloed projects that you have to be that have to be successful on their own there's no there's no cross there's very little cross pollination obviously they probably do some through a email marketing or whatever it is of yeah these are all my customers in this game i'm just going to send them that we have another you know they should download this game but that just doesn't work from a consumer perspective that's why platforms are are important and key to the success of these largest games companies nintendo sony microsoft like they're they're big because they're they're not just a games company they're a platform they they their their brand is at the top of that not not these individual subsidiaries that yeah your hardcore gamers understand but the majority of it just say yeah i i have an xbox i play the xbox games no one's saying i play embracer games and that and that is an issue it's just it's just there's 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 no there's no brand value behind the the overall organization it's all in these individual subsidiaries that can be successful on their own but can also fail on their own and drastically affect the the bottom line of that of that parent organization. I guess the last bit of question is: Is that an opportunity for Sony to to step in and be like, "Hey, look, maybe we can pick up some of these kind of cheap that you know we've been kind of slow on picking up companies outside of Bungie and stuff like that." Especially when you've got former Square Enix properties mixed in there, right? Where that's that's an opportunity for them because those obviously align well with the the customer base of PlayStation. Maybe they pick some of that stuff up. Maybe this is an opportunity to be like, "Cool, well, we'll go hit the bargain bit and embracer and start to shore up our competitive, you know, nature against Microsoft." Now that they've got, you know, uh, all of Activision Blizzard and everything else going on. I think there may be a couple inside there, but I mean, if you look at where Embracer was purchasing their their companies, was more more the mid tier level. And I think it would take a bit, it would take more than just investment inside purchasing the company. I think it would be an investment inside the company and the teams themselves to ramp them up to something that is the equivalent of, okay, now you guys are making God of War. So I think it would, it would be a bit of an expensive uh, purchase, not just on initial price, but um, what the secondary cost would be. But there certainly are some interesting games in there. I mean, I, one of the things I love Sony for is their single-player games. And, you know, Tomb Raider has been that in the past. And I think that, you know, that is an example of a game that, that could be that again. Well, now they've got the portal, so you could play it from another room in your house. There we go. So lots, lots of great stuff going on today. Uh, you know, obviously good news and bad news. I think it's going to be kind of that for a while here. I think we're going to have kind of some ups and downs as the game business goes through a bit of a shakeout, which is, you know, it sounds like a little bit necessary, but obviously painful. And we always hope that uh, everyone here, uh, you know, in the, involved in these ends up in the right places, some good places, or, you know, maybe panelists on the show at the very least, you know, so they got something to do, but uh, you know, lots, lots of uh, stuff coming forward. I, I imagine as well for Embracer and all the companies underneath it. I imagine some games might get canceled. Some games might get pushed forward, hopefully not kicked out prematurely, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully they'll be able to like stabilize in the near future. And we won't have to talk about layoffs, hopefully too much more into 2024. I, I mean, I hope we're kind of uh, hitting the end of that because it obviously is something we've talked about a lot. And that's because it's a big part of the industry right now, unfortunately. But we hope all of you out there listening, especially if you have been affected by those layoffs, are doing well and managing to find some way to uh, to have a, a happy holidays and, and move into that positively, even if it's through some contract work or something else like that. Um, but, you know, do your best. And uh, I just wanted to thank our panelists, of course. And we've got our you know new panelists here, Taylor. Thank you for coming on. And, and our, our fill-in panelists as well, coming in from the, the non-Thanksgiving countries. 
Uh, so appreciate that as well. And of course, listeners, uh, you're probably catching this a little after Turkey Day. So, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, hopefully, you know, maybe maybe taking a break away from the uh, the family for a minute to, to tune in, hopefully. But uh, anyways, have a happy holidays. I want to thank you all for listening and uh, we will catch you next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.